the free for all roundtable brought to you by lexus avon canada's newest lexus dealer near canada's wonderland in the maple auto mall luxury is closer than you think round one joining us for round one this morning sabrina nanji with queen's park observer the journalist and co-founder of the line and online magazine matt gurney who used to co-host or with me and fill in for me when i was off many years ago that must mean you're old matt but nonetheless and uh <laughs> toronto city councillor also a former colleague uh, john burnside who are here with us this morning. Good morning to you all. Good morning. I'm just trying to survive here. But uh, having said all that, uh, we have uh, news uh, which seems to happen always at this time of year to do with teachers and the circumstances with teachers and their contracts. And we have a situation where uh, you have the province having suggested uh, arbitration, uh, the unions having said no to that, uh, the education minister to speak later this morning, and Jerry Agar will keep us posted on that. Uh, and uh, is this just part of the dance that uh, kind of goes on uh, when we get to this stage of labor negotiations where there's been, frankly, no contract in place for quite a while. Maybe we'll start off with you, uh, uh, Matt. Well, you know, it's funny. You mentioned I'm getting old, uh, and I don't think any of us feel as young as we used to, John. But I think, you know, I will add that, you know, years ago, you'll probably remember this. I was supposed to be filling in for you, and you had to end up filling in for me because my daughter ended up arriving uh, slightly ahead of schedule. And since then, I've added one more, and he has only had one normal year of school, and that was all of the labor disruptions before the pandemic, and then the pandemic itself Last year, and he's nine, last school year was his first uninterrupted school year. And I'm already starting to wonder if this is going to be another one. We did get word last week that one of the secondary school unions had reached an agreement with the province. If they cannot hammer out an actual contract, they have agreed to go to binding arbitration. I'm really hoping the others come up with some kind of a deal here, not only because I think that might be a way for us to avoid some of the hysterics that happen around all this stuff, but because I would like my nine-year-old to keep his uninterrupted school year streak going all the way to two years. So, Sabrina, you know, you could look at this, and this is what we're all here to do, uh, look at them in as balanced a way as we can and say, on the one hand, you've got a government here that has some other issues confronting it, and the last thing it needs is to have a labor disruption in the education system. And as Matt said, after all else that's gone on, which wasn't their fault, it was the pandemic and so on. On the other hand, you've got a public that probably isn't in much of a mood for labor disruptions in the school. And so how does that shake itself out in terms of where the leverage or where the advantage lies as between the different people that are involved in this, the teachers unions on the one, one hand and the government on the other. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like here we go again, but it's, it's that time of year. But this time around is different, not least because, as you've sort of alluded to, the Ford government is hoping to change the channel on the, the Greenbelt debacle that it's dealing with. And so while this is not exactly a slam dunk for Education Minister Stephen Lecce, I think having this agreement with the high school teachers union is significant. Um, and certainly it's a big risk also for both parties, uh, because as we know, like on the arbitration side, it's binding. You have to just, you know, accept whatever the arbitrator says. And if we look to the health sector, those workers have been getting awarded relatively big wage increases because they 
like teachers have been held to that wage capping bill 124 and that 1% increase um, over the past three years. And we all know that just is cutting it with today's inflation and sky high costs of living. I know folks in the labor movement are a little bit upset because they see this as undermining, you know, um, the right to strike and, and that as a necessary tool. But definitely, I think the unions here have major leverage. And I do think, you know, to Matt's point, there will be some carrots offered here from the government to sort of get the other unions on board because it's not too late for them. And I think labor peace would be a major win for the Ford government, which really needs that right now. John Birdside, I mean, people went through a lot in the uh, pandemic with respect to kids being home and kids learning online or trying to learn online and all of the rest of it. What do you think the public mood is out there? And, you know, because, again, the public are going to be on the one hand saying, well, look, I can't afford because in the end, I pay I taxpayer pay the bills, you know, for whatever is given to anybody in the healthcare care education system. Uh, on the other hand, they're going to be saying I can't even think about contemplate the notion of the schools being closed down again because of a labor disruption. Yeah, I think the the unions that don't uh, agree to the binding arbitration might be overplaying their hand. Uh, Teachers normally like to, as I say, wrap themselves in the cloak of righteousness, which is making it all about students' education. And now, as Sabrina mentioned, it's uh, are they trying to are they fighting for their right to strike? Or are they fighting for kids' education? And I think when you're fighting for your right to strike, you you lose that you lose that cloak of righteousness. Um, I think that the uh, as in terms of the Ford government, I think the longer this goes on, back to Sabrina's point, is the better it's for them regarding the green belt. So uh, I think it's a win-win for 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 that government. But I'd be very careful. Like, look, the teachers do have some legitimate concerns when it comes to violence in the classroom, uh, the lack of respect they get, the lack of support they get from the administration. Um, school boards and whatnot but if it's coming down to wages and if it's coming down to right to the right to strike i think they better be very careful all right well speaking of being careful uh i don't know exactly what uh, anybody does about uh, trying to figure out what the strategy is of uh, somebody who seems to have one a very definite one and that's pierre polyev and we've talked a lot about how he uh, as the opposition leader and conservative party leader has been you know courting uh, disgruntled liberal votes of which there are a lot especially in a region like this for example uh, there are liberal votes and whether they're disgruntled or not i guess is what he's trying to figure out but there's now uh, some attention being paid to the fact that he has a a different parallel strategy to go after uh, votes from the New Democrats. And I commented uh, earlier this morning that it's reminiscent of what Mike Harris did when he won in 1995, and he won with something called the Common Sense Revolution. But it was of as much appeal to people in Oshawa, where, for example, he won a seat that conservatives hadn't held for decades, uh, because a lot of working people in Oshawa, unionized working people, sort of said, that guy's talking for me. And I was saying earlier on that I think a lot of people out there, including people who might have voted New Democrat feel the system isn't working for them anymore uh, when it comes to affordability and a whole host of other issues, and that could cause them uh, to vote conservative, which a lot of people might have said isn't likely to happen. So is this a potentially winning strategy for Polyev to not only go after keeping his own base and disgruntled liberals, but also to make a push for uh, historically New Democratic Party voters? Maybe I'll start with you, John. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think there's some real parallels to what the, the Republicans are doing in the state. They're going after un- 
not in a pejorative way, but the less educated uh, people that were in the Democratic Party. And we're seeing that uh, the, those Democrats are switching to Republicans, uh, the Republican Party. And, and I think that's what Polyev is doing here. He's not going after every do, new Democratic voter. He's not going after the ones in downtown Toronto. That's a different voter. Um, so I think there could be some success. The question is, you know, he, he seems to like to uh, latch on to every uh, angry person and every angry cause. We saw that with the co uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, the question is, how many people does he actually turn off? And I don't think the electorate in Canada is quite the same as the one in the state. So once again, he better be careful. A viable strategy, Matt? Um, to an extent. I mean, look, the reality is, and this is just electoral math, there aren't enough NDP seats in the country that flipping them would actually get Mr. Polyev what, what he needs. It would get him part of the way, even if he flipped every one. But he, there's just not enough. So he's going to have to go after other areas. But could he add a half dozen, a dozen? Could it be part of another, uh, a broader strategy? Yeah, it absolutely could. And John, it's worth noting as well that like this is not something that is completely hypothetical. The Conservatives federally would love to make the kind of inroads into traditional NDP areas that Doug Ford made provincially just over a year ago. This is something Conservative parties have been working on for a while. And I think strategically, just taking a step back and looking at this from the top-down perspective, I don't know if the NDP is ever going to figure out a solution to the problem that they basically have two primary vote constituency, traditional working-class left-wing economic voters and the opposite which is again more white collar urban progressive voters you know we talk about big tent in politics i think think some of the problems some of our parties are running into is the fact that their tents are too big they're incoherently big at this point i don't know how the ndp hangs on to both of those voter coalitions in the long run yeah and it was pointed out earlier i think by tom Mulcair that he used the expression uh, you know when the ndp have been in bed with the trudeau liberals it's going to be very hard for them to sort of say you know, somehow, well, we had nothing to do with that. You should vote for us uh, as, as an alternative to uh, the Trudeau Liberals. Sabrina, just bringing a provincial, uh, you know, angle into this, because you said at Queen's Park, does does this represent, uh, if, if, there, if we see a rejuvenated pr provincial Liberal Party, say, under Bonnie Crombie, and I know that's not done yet, or, or a Nate uh, Erskine-Smith, uh, does that set up the possibility of a squeeze play, even though the NDP are presently the official opposition? I noted in the story last week saying Doug Ford had problems with the Greenbelt, that the same story also said the present vote count was 38 PC, 25 Liberal, 24 NDP, which is the classic division of opposition that has existed f during the entirety of the 42 years of Conservative rule back in the 80s and so on, 70s, 60s, 50s. Uh, do you think that there is a possibility, even though they sit as official opposition today, the NDP could be victim of a squeeze play provincially? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the Liberals were decimated, but they're definitely, um, you know, making a comeback, as we've seen. And I think Bonnie Crombie, especially, uh, you know, she is a front runner on, on many counts. She's leading the, the fundraising by far, you know, more than all her rivals combined. And the PCs are, are shaking in their boots like they have been attacking her the hardest. They've also been fundraising off of her, uh, potentially taking the, the Liberal crown. And I do think Polyev is making a smart move here. I mean, with all the caveats that have already been mentioned, I think he's 
he's taking a page from Doug Ford's playbook, and I think it will be effective. I mean, especially in Ontario, there's this cross-section of conservative and NDP voters who swing both ways. Generally, it's so-called blue-collar workers. You know, Doug Ford made a play for unions, um, in particular private sector unions, but they managed to pick up. They poached a bunch of NDP seats just a year ago in the Windsor area up north in Brampton and the 905, which can make or break you as government. And so definitely, I think that Polyev is watching what's playing out provincially in Ontario and taking a page from Doug Ford. So, uh, Sabrina, I'll start with you on this next one, just a minute or two on this. Uh, do you think that Ottawa is barking up the wrong tree when they are going after supermarket change to reduce single-use plastics as opposed to what I think is the outrageously excessive packaging often used by people who are not supermarket change but the suppliers, uh, including even sending fruit and other such things wrapped in plastic, but also a lot of other products? Do you think it's better to go after the people who are making and packaging this stuff as opposed to the supermarket chains? Or is it better to go after the supermarkets as customer themselves saying, we're not going to take and buy those products from you anymore unless you reduce single-use plastics? Where, where is the, you know, where's the best place for the government to go? Yeah, I, I think you I think you're onto something there. Um, I mean, why not go after both, right? And I, I think I'm just kind of waiting to see how this plays out because what we know so far, I've got a lot of questions on like the enforcement and how effective this will actually be. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna name names right now, but there's like this small independent grocery store where I'm at in the beaches that still gives plastic bags and you know, I'm not going to call them out because I always forget my reusables. So I'm kind of grateful for them. But this, a lot of this seems to be, at least for the grocery stores, like self-regulated and dependent and on them playing ball. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm waiting to see how effective this is actually going to be and if it will actually make a big difference. Do you think it will, John? Uh, well, I think the, the the issue is quite complex. So I was just in the UK, and if you when you're in the uh, laundry detergent aisle, everything is tiny, tiny, tiny because it's concentrated. So that in that case, you have to go after the supplier. You, the grocery store has nothing to do with that. But then I was in uh, Shoppers Drug Mart on the weekend as well, um, and you know they have the sl- the smallest little uh, razor blade package in this huge plastic packaging because of theft. Yeah. Oh, right? I see. That's why. Right. It's the theft that's and. Okay. And, you know, we're reading about this more and more uh, about organized crime and theft and, and the, the shrinkage on that level that retailers are facing. So how do you address that? Yeah, it's a good question. Matt, I'll let you off the hook on plastics because we're up against the clock and I'm sort of, I'm, I'm just relearning uh, this business uh, that, that you know so well. But uh, I want to express uh, my thanks very much uh, to all of our panelists this morning, Sabrina Nanji with Queen's Park Observer, uh, Matt Gurney uh, from The Line, and John Burnside, a member of Toronto City Council. Catch the Roundtable, round one at 7.45, round two at 8.45. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.